Welcome to That's Podcasting, a movie musical podcast. I'm Cody Pasby. And I'm Paul Ponte. And today we are wrapping up our month-long look at the one and only Judy Garland. And we are going to be discussing the 1946 Western musical, The Harvey Girls. Now, there are a lot more Judy Garland musicals to talk about in the future. And of course, we will talk about that. There's movie she starred in with Fred Astaire that we haven't talked about with Gene Kelly. There's, of course, a movie that's been remade about 17 million times that we haven't talked about. Uh, so we will talk about all those in the future. But for now, we will discuss what was kind of a... This is this is not the end of the road here for Judy Garland, but certainly the beginning of the next chapter in her career. The one that I think when people talk about the story of Judy Garland, I have yet to see the Renee Zellweger uh, biopic about her. But I would imagine a lot of it has to do with the later, the late Judy Garland, the Judy Garland that sort of she becomes uh, due to years of mistreatment and abuse and of all kinds, just the tragic figure she became. And it, it kind of begins here, the sort of downs, the, the spiral downward uh, with this movie, not to get all sad and negative, but the story of Judy becomes very sad and tragic. And uh, But despite it all, just is always just the shining light. So Let's talk a little bit about how this movie got made. It's based off of the 1942 novel of the same name, which I knew parts of this movie going into it, full discretion, uh, Paul. I had never seen the movie. Uh, the big number, the from the Atchison, Topeka to Santa Fe, that big number is one. I think they've played it in That's Entertainment, and I, I've seen it before. I've definitely seen it before, but I didn't know a whole lot about this movie. But I come to realize, oh, wait a minute. This is like if they made a movie called, like, The Denny's Boys, about a group of men who went and opened Denny's chain restaurants throughout the country. I mean, that's, yeah. that's essentially what this movie is about. Yeah, there's, uh, yeah, when I've heard uh, The Harvey Girls, it's a true story. I was like, wait, what? Yeah, all of this, all the singing and dancing really happened, all of it. Uh, it was... <laughs> Originally set, actually, to be a drama starring Lana Turner and Clark Gable. And after watching this, how could they have ever turned this into a drama? But I guess they could have. Uh, but after producer Robert Edens went and saw Oklahoma on Broadway, he decided, no, nah, I'm going to turn this movie into a musical, a Western musical. Those are hot right now with all original songs written by Johnny Mercer and Henry Warren. And he recruited Judy, Gar Judy Garland to star in this movie. Clark Gable actually was set to co-star with her. And when you see her co-star, John Hodiak, you realize, okay, yeah, they got the uh, B version of uh, Clark yes. Gable for this movie. Yeah. They got the Ross Dress for Less version of Clark Gable. Yes, absolutely. Not that he doesn't do a, a he does a fine job, but certainly you look at him and you're like, you are you are doing a Clark Gable impression in this movie. Yeah, it's it's like they went, we we need a Clark Gable type, and they went, I'll do it. Yeah, and they couldn't actually get Clark Gable. Uh, they also considered Gene Kelly for the role when it was supposed to be more of a song and dance role. Uh, could see how that wouldn't really work. For this movie, he would have been fine, but I think they, uh, the Gable type is certainly what they needed. 
But at the same time, Judy Garland was set to co-star with Fred Astaire, whom she had never actually worked with up to that point, in the movie Yolanda and the Thief, which was also being directed by her soon-to-be husband, Vincente Minnelli. But Robert Edens convinced her that you're going to have a way bigger role in the Harvey Girls, promised that the whole movie would be a showcase for her talents, so she jumped on. I think this would be a good time also to just offer a quick recap of where Judy is at 1945 when they filmed this movie. First of all, she is 23 going on 24. It feels like we have talked about a lifetime of memories, and yet she's not even a quarter of a century old at this point. Yeah, she's still paying that high premium for uh, running a car. Yes, precisely. She can't even uh, drive a boat at this point. Yeah. Her car insurance is through the roof at this point. Yeah, just madness. Uh, She's only 24. She's already dealt with years of mistreatment from the studio, everything from her weight fluctuating to, I I don't think I ever actually knew this because this is just... If, if you want a microcosm of how women were treated in Hollywood during the quote-unquote golden age, uh, the studio basically dictated when she could and couldn't have a baby. Uh, the studio, along with her mother in 1941, insisted that she have an abortion when be- she, she became pregnant with her first husband, David Rose, because the pre- pregnancy was not approved, quote-unquote, by the studio. Uh, Same happened in 1943. She had an affair with Tyrone Power. Uh, There is just a disturbing amount of stories like this for so many actresses in Hollywood uh, during that time. Just just on top of all the other awfulness. But a bit of good news finally for Judy as she married director Vincente Minnelli, of course, the director of Meet Me in St. Louis in summer of 1945. Of course, just after finishing up a brief affair with the one and only Orson Welles earlier that year. Ah, mm-hmm. uh, yes, I, the fine wines of Judy, yes. Uh. Yeah, I believe I've heard about a lot of this on the uh, You Must Remember This podcast, when they talk about the golden age of Hollywood. A spectacular podcast, by the way, and required listening, absolutely. Uh, things seem to still be at a tipping point with Judy, as she apparently missed 11 days of filming for this movie and was late to set around 40 times for this film. In fact, her co-star, Virginia O'Brien, was pregnant during filming and she is basically gone in the second half of the movie. She's the one who sings that song uh, with Ray Bolger in the barn. Uh, yeah. she, has a, she has a lot to do in the first half and then is gone because... Judy kept showing up late or not at all, so production kept getting pushed, and she got too pregnant for them to be able to hide her belly, and so she was basically cut out of the second half of the picture. So, sure, that is, uh, she, sure, she didn't hold that grudge till her dying day against Judy Yeah, Garland. for sure. Uh, so, yeah, over the next couple of years, there's multiple incidents, including a nervous breakdown on the set of The Pirate for Judy, uh, continued abuse of drugs and alcohol, bouts with depression, and eventually it causes the end of her relationship with MGM. She does remain a huge box office draw for them until the very end of her contract, 
Easter Parade, which she starred with Fred Astaire, becomes the biggest box office hit of her career. She stars with Gene Kelly and Summerstock, which itself is a really big hit, but ends up losing a lot of money, again, because she didn't show up on set a lot and they burned a lot of money. Final nail in the coffin was her refusal to work with her old buddy Busby Berkeley on the adaptation of Annie Get Your Gun, and she just did not show up to work. And so in 1950, after a 15-year tenure with MGM, her contract ended in September of that year. So after that, she goes on to make, I think, a few movies with Warner Brothers. I think that's where her main contract goes. But uh, yeah, the end of the MGM tenure is certainly a whirlwind. But this is really, uh, once again, her at her full strength and her full power in this movie. Even that, uh, I feel like it's they, she must have had something in her contract. It's like, I need one song of Just Me, Baby. Just oh, me. yeah. Because that beginning number, you can see the Oklahoma influence right Very from the get go. Yeah. It's like overture, sweeping shot of the West, and then get on our main character, have them sing this romantic song of the grandeur of the unexplored West. Uh, it's, it's great. It's wonderful. The film is directed by George Sidney who was just starting to have an impressive run of directing films uh, that had both commercial and critical success. He already had success with 1945's Anchors Away, starring Gene Kelly and Frank Sinatra. He goes on to direct 1948's Three Three Musketeers, also starring Gene Kelly, and a bunch of Broadway adaptations, including eventually went on to direct Annie Get Your Gun, Showboat, Kiss Me Kate, Pal Joey, Bye Bye Birdie, and he directed arguably the most iconic Elvis movie ever made. That would be Viva Las Vegas. So Mm. pretty good career for old Georgie Pie. Uh, Judy was actually reunited with her Wizard of Oz co-star Ray Bolger for this movie, his first film with MGM since The Wizard of Oz. The two go down completely different paths uh i think we mentioned in the wizard of oz episode that the imprint on his face from the scarecrow makeup was not removed what did not come off his face for a full year yes and lo and behold 1940 not a single credit on his filmography in fact only two film credits between the wizard of oz and this movie although he did do some Broadway and some live performances in between. Uh, his career does take an uptick after this movie. He goes on to win a Tony Award for acting in 48. He has some television success in the 50s, and he also goes on to star in the Disney musical Babes in Toyland in 1961. Also, as I'm watching this movie, and we'll dig into it maybe a little later, maybe it just was the fact that he had that scarecrow makeup and you lose a year in acting it's like losing 10 years but why was he not a bigger star like look at the mm. like that tap number he does that's dick so van dyke that's dick van dyke stick 20 years earlier i don't know i mean maybe he just doesn't i mean he doesn't exactly you know he's great but i think dick van dyke also kind of lights up the screen not just in in dancing just like the way he speaks and the way he is I guess, yeah, maybe Bulger just doesn't have that that specific uh, charisma. Never did I think, oh, he's, he, I, I would want a uh, melding of Don Knotts and Dick Van Dyke in one yeah. actor, and he gives <laughs> it to me. I want that. Yeah, I mean, I, I really enjoyed that tap number. I thought it was so good. It's so good. So I, I enjoyed good. a lot of the numbers in this movie. We're, we're going to get to them, but mm-hmm. I, I thought I, 
I, especially since we've been uh, a little bit into some of the more subdued musicals. You know, I like seeing all the, you know, the three people coming into frame from one side, da 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 da, da and then from the other side, da da da, and you know they they just jump back and forth. I, you know, I, I, it was cool to see um, a little bit more robust of a musical. It's I, I think as we've gone along, and obviously Wizard of Oz is its own huge spectacle, but like from me and my gal to Meet Me in St. Louis to this. There's this obvious rise in like her star power has gained so much that each movie becomes bigger and grander. And this is like the pinnacle where there is just some jaw dropping numbers. And the, just the 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 size and scope of them is really incredible. So the film also stars a one Angela Lansbury. This is just her fourth mm. film role. And it also features Sid Charisse, who goes on to become a huge star of musicals on the screen. And despite their future in musicals, in Angela Lansbury's case, becoming a Broadway legend on top of a film legend, the singing parts for both actresses are dubbed over in this movie. Excuse me. I just wanted to say, Cody, Dame Angela Lansbury. Sorry. Excuse me. Excuse me. I forgot there was royalty among us. Yes. Yeah, it's it's so jarring. Like, if I hadn't even looked that up, if I had heard that first song with Angela Lansbury, I would have been like, well, uh, nope, something's wrong. Something's wrong. That's not that's not her. It's definitely not her. Um, she's Mrs. Potts, so you just hear that voice. Uh, it's very weird. To, it's very alien to not hear her voice coming out of her own mouth. Uh, the movie does go on to be a success. It ends up winning an Oscar for Best Original Song. And yeah, ends up being one of Judy Garland's biggest box office hits, of course, until uh, things started to go a bit awry. But let's focus on the positive. And this movie is all that and more. Yes, it is about... Uh, did you do any research on the actual restaurants the Harvey House. I I didn't get a chance to. I was just looking over it right now for a for a second. It's uh, it seems like at one point, like they had them like right on the side of, like every picture I see is like pictures of like next to train tracks. So like, literally like not even just like all the way in town. Sometimes it would be like, like at the stations. Or right. Something? I don't know. So basically, these are the earliest 20th century versions of like, oh, I don't know, Hard Rock Cafe or Planet Hollywood. <laughs> maybe yeah, and maybe also a little for bit a while. They actually had restaurants in the cars. That was later on. The uh, AT and SF trains operating west of Kansas City. Harvey agreed to support the railroad in this endeavor, and California Limited became the first ever named trains to feature Harvey Company meal service en route. Okay, so. Maybe not quite the Planet Hollywood comparison I was looking for. <laughs> not quite. You can't get, uh, there's not like Fred Harvey Meals shirts with different, uh, like Fred Harvey Meals in Albuquerque. Oh, they were definitely the, uh, the one of the big uh, things into bringing more obesity into America because <laughs> they, they, their meals were served in sumptuous portions that provided a good value for the traveling public. For instance, pies were cut into fourths rather than sixths, which was the industry standard at the time. Wait a minute. <laughs> That's so much pie. That's a lot of pie. <laughs> like, hold on. Would you like a fourth of a pie, please? Hell yeah. Admittedly, I have definitely had a fourth of a pie <laughs> on a given night without question. Apparently, Fred Harvey was a dick. 
He set high standards for cleanliness, inspecting them as often as possible. It was said that nothing escaped his notice, and he was even known to completely overturn a poorly set table. This is clearly an eighth of a pie, not a fourth of a pie. It's like, the fork goes on the left, and he just tosses it up in the air. Yeah, by 1968, I'm reading this from the Wikipedia, it, it was sold to Amfac, Inc., and it was the sixth largest re- food retailer in the United States. There was a Fred Harvey dining facility located every 100 miles across the AT&SF Railroad. Wow. This is, I was about to say, oh, maybe this is like a Route 66 sort of uh, company. No, it predates that. It's, this is a transcontinental yeah. railroad boom of a company. All right. Well, Fred Harvey. Shocker, he's a bit of a dick. I feel like that's pretty much the norm whenever we bring these types of guys up. I heard someone started a very large corporation in America. Oh, lo and behold, it turns out he was a dick. (laughs) And it was a successful company? He's a huge dick. (laughs) But apparently, from what I understand, a lot of times railroad water stops uh, would consist of horrible restaurants with rancid meat cold beans and weak old coffee and it was like so basically harvey was the first one to be like hey how about we have something edible (laughs) (laughs) what a genius of what a restaurateur genius let's have fresh food you don't have Uh, to cut around the mold spots at old fred harvey meals oh and in a very very early bit of synergy uh basically they had a mutual deal with the AT&SF uh, Railroad where uh, they would they agreed to convey fresh meat and produce free of charge to any every any Harvey house versus with their refrigerator cars. And uh, if you think about it, it's like, OK, so the people know that you can actually get good food on this railway line. So they would ship the meat and vegetables and everything for free so that more passengers. It's like this is corporate synergy at its finest. Yep. And this is super early for that to be happening. Well, this is I mean, what we're at the peak of the Industrial Revolution here. So it's all it's all coming together here. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think I'm only going to order a quarter pie for the rest of my life whenever I go out. And of course, the Harvey girls, the namesake, that was a very popular look. They had a very iconic look uh, that you actually see in the movie. Uh, that was their actual uniform. Yeah, I see. I see one of the preserved ones right now online. Yeah, at the famed Harvey houses. And this Harvey house was going to uh, sort of uh, <laughs> calm down. Uh, uh, what? <laughs> Go ahead. I just saw the ad. Let's see. Okay. He placed ads in newspapers all around the East Coast and Midwest for white, young women, 18 to 30 years of age, of good character, attractive, and intelligent. The ironic thing is, like, this movie is all about how, like, the Harvey girls are this pristine uh, symbol of cleanliness and of good, uh, good-heartedness. Um, and um, there it is, the roots of uh, some, some ugly-sounding roots. <laughs> Yeah, and, and it's weird because he's like, okay, so we need these, we need attractive girls, but then the other thing was we need to make it. There, it, it said like they had like a, an older maid woman who basically, you know, you see her in the movie. Yes, who's kind of like the um, what do they call that at like a sorority house? Like, uh, yeah, I know what you mean. I know what you mean. Yeah, but it says like uh, the starch black and white uniform, which was de- designed to diminish the female physique. So basically, the whole idea is they they need to look like pure like. 
pure good young women like angelic you know? yeah right yeah yeah exactly especially you know considering this movie like the ta- the towns they were going to were these the end of the era of the wild west where it's yeah. it's they're all trying to to tie them down and to to make them you know more fit in more with society and these harvey girls were going to come in and do it and whip them into shape yeah, they really were uh, trying to skirt the. Uh, I don't know if the, is there a ratings board by this point. No, not no. really. No, there's not they, a there's not an official ratings board for movies till what the sixties. Really? Okay. No, I, I maybe just know that, uh, I just know that uh, they, they really tried to skirt around the the word whorehouse because they don't say it. <laughs> they don't <laughs> say it they, at all. It is, it is obvious what they are implying is going on. <laughs> Yeah, they never ever say these women are doing the oldest uh, profession in history, but yeah. yeah, because without without thinking about it, it seems so weird. They're just like, "What do you mean you're going to entertain them when we're the entertainers? You're not going to watch them dance. You'd rather wouldn't you rather watch us dance? Look, these men, look how righteous they are. They picked a good time rather than a different good time." <laughs> All right. <laughs> Thumbs up. It's it, it's a very strange, like, the ending message of, like, ha-ha. But then it's also really randomly progressive where, like, Judy Garland, it, we'll, we'll get to it at the end. But she goes, like, she's basically like, oh, but, you know, maybe I was wrong. I was a little too judgy. So, yeah. Yeah, that really is, weird. I do appreciate that. Like, I, there was a point where I thought, oh, is this just going to end up becoming, like, women against women when it's, like, stop fighting each other, start, you know, these, it's all these pig-headed men that you need to be fighting. But there was a bit of an understanding at the end of it, a little bit. Yeah. yeah. If they remade this movie now, it would be, well, I mean, yeah, it would basically be like, uh, just look at Hustlers. It's like, yeah, it's just the opposite. You just flip it around. Now it's uh, Judy Garland would be, uh, like, the J-Lo role. So, you make it into a musical. <laughs> so, the movie starts out, and we're going down that train, the, uh, you know, the aforementioned Atchison, Topeka, and Santa Fe. We start out, like, like I mentioned, you feel the vibes of Oklahoma almost immediately. Uh, in the song, In the Valley, where the evening sun goes down, a romantic solo song just about the beauty, the grandeur, the mystery of the West. Um, it's a beautiful number. It's Judy Garland once again, just at her peak, at her finest, uh, singing uh, a gorgeous song. By the way, all songs, all original songs in this one. So respect for that. I I, I kind of got why George Sidney, the director, goes on to direct a lot of stage to screen adaptations after this, because this is not obviously a stage adaptation. This musical, it's an original movie musical. But a lot of the numbers feel like, oh, these were, you could put this on a stage and they would look really big and really like big showstoppers. And yeah. he films them really, really well where they feel intimate for the screen and yet the scope of it is not lost, which is a really fine line when you're adapting stage musicals and bringing them onto film. So we meet Susan Bradley, played by Judy Garland, and she's a mail order bride. On her way to meet her yeah. soon-to-be husband in Sand Rock, Arizona. First of all, mail order bride right off the bat. It's almost like a weird, like... She kind of is, but it's also just like we're pen pals, and I'm like, yeah, sure, let's get yeah. married. It's just like, hey, I'm, you know, I'm 24. I'm obviously ancient. Uh, I need someone to marry me. Ah, who's going to marry me? Uh, and I mean, I mean, who would who would marry her back where she lives? Because she's obviously not attractive at all. 
you know, all those yeah. smug, hoity-toity folks from yeah. Ohio. You know, yeah. the capital of smugness. Yes, exactly. Ohio. Oh, get out of here with your tiny waist and your beautiful eyes and your red lips. Get out. Get out, you homely little thing. Um, yeah, it's very strange. She's like, she's like, I'm sight unseen. I'm going to apply to be this dude's wife. This is essentially the first catfish scenario is yeah, what's happening yes, right now. Yes, it was, Cody. Good for you. I didn't catch that. That's Good what's happening you. here. And then even later on, what is it? Ned Trent tells uh, uh, the soon-to-be husband, H.H. Hartsey, uh, she could be, God forbid, she could be 200 pounds. God forbid. Man. More like Neve, huh? <laughs> Instead of Ned. <laughs> so somebody was going to get catfish. It was, uh, it was yeah. bound to happen. So she's on her way to little old Sandrock, Arizona. Uh, and along the way, she meets up with a group of women who will be helping to open the first Harvey House restaurant in the town. Seeing that she has no food of her own, uh, she literally has just a cracker in her lunchbox. Uh, a little too on the nose with art imitating life there with, with poor Judy. She has to <laughs> well, give no it carbs. to no uh, She carbs, has to Kate. give it to that little girl. Like, oh, geez. Uh, but luckily, the Harvey girls are there to uh, to have her back, and uh, she as they make their way out west. And then uh, we hear one of the first songs, "Wait and See," which is just a short clip of it, but it's a recurring theme throughout the movie. That's where we first meet Angela Lansbury, who is playing M. And again, very alien, very strange, very wrong to hear any other voice coming out of her mouth other than you know her voice. The one that, I don't know, won Tony Awards on Broadway, was in the original cast for Sweeney Todd. We then meet H.H. H. Hartsey, played by uh, greatest name in acting history, Chill Wills, who was also, I don't know if you caught this, that's our old friend who has definitely seen some shit in Meet Me in St. Louis. Oh, was it? Okay. Yes, same man. Uh, he tells the gang at the local saloon that his soon-to-be bride is arriving any minute, and the saloon owner, Ned Trent, said she might not be what he suspects. And that's where, as the train rolls in, we get this just kick-ass number on the Atchison, Topeka, in Santa Fe. Just blown away by how good this whole number is is it's so huge um i'm assuming they shot this in like i don't know an hour north in the desert from la from burbank yeah um probably and but nonetheless it all looks so good and the dancing is on point and the shots are perfect apparently from when they go to judy when she gets off the train to the end of the song or at least her part that's all one take they did not do another. T- they did two takes, but they just took the first one because it was perfect. Didn't awesome. need another one. They just did it for posterity. Yeah, I, I, this song's so good. I, I love this song and I love this number. By the way, this film is a big success, but it's nothing compared to this song. To build interest for the movie, the song was released as a single about a half a year before the film came out. Uh, it became the song of the summer that year in 1945 and it was number one on the billboard charts from july 28th through september 8th it was a massive hit there was a couple other songs that were released for this movie that also charted really well like 
huge hits and it's it's so strange considering all the songs that have become so iconic and this is definitely up there with judy garland's career i mean come on mandy patinkin sang it there you go the great mandy patinkin by the way damn right quick aside did you happen to watch any of the uh sondheim 90th uh birthday concert that they did not so mandy patinkin is in there and uh, it's it's also great to be like, who has a good mic setup at their house? Uh, spoiler alert, not a lot of them, uh, which that's fine. It's forgivable. But Mandy Patinkin decides, you know what? Fuck it. I'm going to stand in my backyard, which has a creek, has a full on creek backyard. He's got like a small river in his backyard uh, and just in huddled up in his little jacket, just sings a song from Sunday in the Park with George. And I'm like, what a flex by Mandy Patinkin. I just want to hang out a little creek with Manny Patinkin. Who doesn't want to hang out by the creek with yeah. Manny Patinkin? He had his dog in the uh, in the shot oh, with him, just at his lap. Yeah, you throw you throw a dog in there, Cody. I'm I'm paying for this Airbnb experience. Ooh, <laughs> <laughs> Great upstate New York house included Mandy Patinkin and his dog. Oh, well now I'm sold. The amenities are fantastic. <laughs> uh. So uh, more about the song, uh, by the way, it's a clear about halfway through because we hear a little bit about like, oh, the Harvey house is coming in. Uh, they're going to clean this place up. Nobody wants that. And uh, I think it's very clear uh, uh, in this song like the men don't want the women, the Harvey girls here, because then it means like they have to like give a shit about anything. They have to like take showers and like have to you know cut their fingernails like they have to do these things now and it's like fuck man i was just i was just getting used to the smell of my of my four month old stink you're telling me i can't throw garbage out of my windows anymore i thought this was america (laughs) when people romanticize the old west the things they forget about is that it was mostly a bunch of fucking gross men who would just why i love deadwood there you go because because nothing in Deadwood hides you from how gross things are. Yeah. It it just it's it's right in front of you. It's just like they're walking through the streets like, oh, uh, uh. every step they take, you're like, oh, this is disgusting. Oh, my yeah. God. Ugh. And respect to this movie that, yes, it ha- it does show a sort of polished version. Of I mean, course. But it also kind of points out like, oh, we're going into this place with a bunch of these uh, these outlaws and these men who are just living this lawless life. And we're kind of coming in to clean it up. So, uh, yeah, I appreciate that uh, they're not hiding that, despite the fact that they never say the word whorehouse at any yeah. point in the movie. Cat house. <laughs> Cat house. Anything. I mean, what? They, are they even referred gambling to? Gambling house? Are they even referred to as showgirls at any point? Like, that would be the only I other thing. I don't think so. They, it's very vague as to what's going on in yeah. that building. I ref- I refer to when i'm describing them i refer to them as showgirls because that's about the tamest thing i could describe them as and also yeah we're not really given uh much detail anyway this number is incredible it totally represents mgm musicals at the peak of their powers of just what they were capable of doing uh that final part where they're going along the train where they're all chugging along with the train that just that just gets me pumped Uh, Okay, I see in the movie they're called Dance Hall Girls. Dance Hall Girls. Okay, fair enough. In the saloon. The Dance Hall Girls of the saloon. Okay, fair enough. Dance Hall Girls. We'll go with that. You got it. 
So as the girls get off the train, H.H. Uh, Hartsey mistakes Sonora Cassidy, another familiar face from Meet Me in St. Louis, the actress Marjorie Maine, uh, for his mail-order wife, uh, but she then beats the shit out of him and says, what are you doing? No, it's actually this girl. He sees Susan and, uh, re- and to his credit, I think realizes, oh, man, I'm, I'm going to be tricking this girl. This girl's way too good for me. Uh, tell me no. I don't. I can't marry you. And uh, much to her relief, she says yes, absolutely. I will not marry your ass. Uh, yeah. Bye bye. Uh, she finds out that it's Ned Trent, played by John Hodiak, who was the one writing the letters. So Susan goes and finds him, storms into the saloon to confront him. She leaves in a huff and decides to go join the Harvey Girls because now she's not getting married. There's nobody else. Time to join. The working girls join the working class. This is also a, a, a good uh, depends on how you look at it. It's either a great story of working class struggle or it's uh, a horror story about uh, corporate takeover in small towns. Uh, <laughs> this is like, uh, yeah, they're gentrifying the neighborhood. Yeah, essentially. That's what they're doing. They are gentrifying Sand Rock, Arizona. Could be good. Could be bad. I don't know. Yeah. So that's when we get to uh, the song The Train Must Be Fed. This is another, uh, this whole, the way this is all choreographed, like the camera uh, is so good. Uh, the camera, there's so many great dynamic shots that feel uh, like they, they feel so unique to the time. And yeah, I, I love them. Like those big, those close-up shots, like sort of comedic close-up shots of, of the uh, heads of the staff in the middle yeah. of the song. That's what I mean, uh, the part I mentioned earlier about the people ju- jumping into frame from left to right, and they're kind of, like, zooming in, and, like, yeah, it was a, it was a very dynamic uh, direction. It really keeps you on your toes, and it, once again, feels like something that they plucked out of a big stage musical and brought it to screen really, really well. So, it's yeah, love this number. Uh, and then we go back to the saloon and another quick hitter from M., who is performing in front of the saloon crowd on stage. We get the song, Oh, You Kid, very, very quickly. And then after a performance, she goes over to Ned, who tells her that he's going to go and size up the competition over at the Harvey house. And as she says, yours or mine, ooh, Mm. burn. You might say it was a murder. (laughs) She wrote. Yes. Every grandmother's favorite show. Murder, Uh. So we enter the busy restaurant, and Susan waits on Ned's table. He asks for a steak. Very rare, as he puts it. She goes back and finds that the kitchen has no meat. It's all vanished. And so is their manager. She realizes something is up and suspects that Ned has something to do with it. So what does she do? Well, what anyone would do in the Old West. Finds the two closest pistols and brandishes them as she clumsily makes her way over. I love this whole scene. It's so great. Um... Judy is adorable in this scene as she fiddles with the guns and doesn't quite know how to hold them, uh, falls over and drops them at one point. But she goes over and tries to, like, hold the whole place up. And, again, I love that the whole crowd just is like, eh, just play along with it. This is cute. Like, oh, cute. Yeah. Uh, she's playing stick em up. Oh, cute. All right, everyone, let her have it. She does shoot a bottle out of the bar- the barkeep's hand, so... Yes. There is that. So she does mean business. Uh, eventually, though, she is led to the back, and that's where she finds that all of the meat 
has been stolen as long as well with her manager. Uh, also love that she comes out and then says, all right, well, thanks, everyone. And then accidentally shoots the light. Uh, just a great little cherry on top. And then the absolute, the cherry on top of the cherry on top. She returns, drops that uncooked steak at Ned's table and says, very rare. And scene. That reminded me of like the end of an episode of I Love Lucy. That's what that whole like skeet, like that part itself was like a little sitcom plot in the middle of this film where like she's like, oh, we got to serve the dinner. Wait, where's the meat? The meat's gone. Oh, it's them who did it. He's the one who did it. Okay, bring, boom, very rare. Ha ho! Crowd goes wild. Finishes yeah. the fuck up. <laughs> if it was a '90s comedy, it would be whooping and hollering when he drops when she drops that yep. steak. Be like, woo! Yeah, yeah it'd be great. Uh, it was it, a very sitcomy joke. It is. It's a great little aside in this uh, in this movie. Good com- good comedic bits and uh, ironic. He said. Uh, it's like I love Lucy. Lucille Ball was nearly in this movie, so oh, there you go. Uh, also, I don't. I <laughs> I'm looking at my notes and I forgot I wrote this line down just because it made me giggle. One of the guys says, "Rather have a dead-eyed dick than a girl with a gun in her hand." I mean, it's not meant to be a double entendre, but it might as well be. <laughs> uh. Yeah, is he talking about like a like a sheriff who's a good shot? Maybe. I don't really know what he's referring to right there. Uh, it may very well be a double entendre. I'm looking up the term dead eye dick. Be uh, very did you careful. know Did you know they were an alternative rock trio from New Orleans from nineteen ninety one? Well, that's obviously what he's referring to in nineteen forty six. So we go back to the Harvey girls' home that night, and then Susan, Deborah, played by the young Sid Charisse, her very first film role, by the way, and Alma, played by Virginia O'Brien, think about the lives that they might have had and hoping to still be able to chase their dreams one day in the song It's a Great Big World. So from what I'm reading, Dead Eye Dick is just uh, an accurate marksman. All right, fair enough. Just... Maybe maybe it's like, you know, like, you know, you say any Tom, Dick, and Harry. Like, you're just like a dead-eyed dick. Just like a rando, random dude who's just good at shooting. Bang, bang. Well, I'm going to think of it in a much dirtier way than that because it made me laugh. Oh, Cody. <laughs> so the song, It's a Great Big World. Uh, another lovely number. The girls sort of dream about the lives they may have had, reminisce about their past uh, what is it? Uh, Deborah says she was a dancer. Yeah. Uh, Virginia or Alma talks about she loved to knit and um, also very simple choreography that works really, really well. The three girls, the, they're putting all their heads together. And uh, it's yeah, I really like this number. Very cute. Very, uh, very adorable little number. So as the song ends, someone actually shoots through the window and shoots the lamp and scares them. Turns out. That it's mean old Judge Purvis, played by Preston Foster, who I was looking at his filmography and I thought, oh, this is a, um, a what's Leonardo DiCaprio's character in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Oh, uh, Rick Dalton. This is a real life Rick Dalton. This I was like, I, I would l- almost want to ask Tarantino, like, did you pr- base this? I mean, I'm sure he based it off of a, a number of people. Yeah. But like the whole this guy's whole career is like 
he played sort of hero tough guys, but then he got older and he was the villain in a bunch of heavy. westerns. He was the heavy in a bunch of westerns. He is the classic heavy. What's next? Mannix? The Green Hornets? Batman? Bing Bang Zoom? <laughs> Still a great scene. I watched that again the other day. It's ah, such a great scene. So good. So Judge Purvis tells Ned about what he did, and uh, yes, it was indeed Judge Purvis scaring all those little girls, trying to get them out of town. Yeah, I already got four of them out of here. <laughs> as he says, as he twirls his mustache. If I could double back real quick mm-hmm. to the song uh, about the girls... Right. And it kind of ties into what, what Judy Garland's character, uh, Susan, goes through at the end. Uh, it does kind of weave in the whole idea of, like, almost like carny lifestyle, where it's, like, people who are running from something, or, like, where she's kind of like, well, I always wanted to do this, but eh, instead I'm doing this. So I always, always want to do this, but instead I'm doing this. Like, And then at the end, she's like, well, maybe I don't think this life is for me, and blah, blah, blah. Like, uh, there, there is something to There is, like, a tinge of, like the sadness of like running away from life and then engrossing yourself in this traveling lifestyle. Yeah. Yeah. In this movie. Yeah. And you don't really think about it with, you know, waitresses uh, at a restaurant, but that's kind of what people did back then. It wasn't just, Oh, I'll get a job at the local restaurant. Like I'm going to do something exciting back then when people would, you know, they would live with their parents until they got married and then the parents would move in with them when they got old and everyone would kind of live in the same town forever and like not do anything. And they got all these, all these young women who literally just leave their families behind and it's, or they don't have families to begin with. So it's, it's, it's a, yeah, it's a, it's an interesting little tidbit of uh, melancholy in the middle of this, you know, grand comedy Western. Yeah, and, I'm not, and this movie, I'm not going to call it a uh, trailblazing film in terms of gender politics by any means. No, but, but there, there are some little things in there. Yeah, yeah absolutely. But I think there is a lot there, uh, especially like, again, girls, these independent girls going out on their own and working and, and well, making they, a life of their own and in a name of, the, of their own, you know? They could have easily had a, a Fred Harvey character who's there to oversee the business and make things go blah de blah and they don't do that. No, it's all just the women. It's it yeah. really the main, like, uh, what is it? Cassidy is the sort of the main woman who who oversees all of them and takes care of all of them. It's, it's yeah, it's, it's all just a group of women trying to make it in the Old West. It's really all it is. So, Purvis tells Ned that yes, indeed, I did shoot the in the lamp in the girl's room, much to Ned's disdain. But then Purvis has a chance to go talk to the girls, introduce himself, and like the old snake he is, he shows one side of him this charming old fellow just trying to keep the law of the land in check, and says that it was indeed Ned who shot through their window the night before. So then Susan goes to confront him in the saloon, but she runs into him first who doesn't know what Susan knows and tells her that Ned is not going to fall for her despite all that he's done to make her feel welcome. Approve the church that's going to be built. Let you plant your little flowers. Uh, this is all news to Susan, so she kind of decides, you know what, maybe uh, this, this Ned fella is a little better than what I had thought. Cut to Chris Mall, or as I liked how he said, Tex from Massachusetts. He's played by Ray Bolger. He's a blacksmith who does not know a single thing about how to put horseshoes on horses, which I also didn't know either. 
Do they still put horseshoes on horses? Is that still a thing? Yes. Okay. How does... I'm going to... There's going to be people who are horse experts maybe listening to this. How much does that hurt the horse to put a horseshoe on? Like, a lot? I mean, you said you drive six nails and put a hot, red-hot horseshoe on their foot, on their hoof. Let's see... When done properly, it doesn't hurt the horse to have the horseshoes mounted. The hoof is connected to the skin and the flesh, but the hoof itself can be compared to the fingernails of humans. As long as the nails are not inserted too deeply, the horse will not feel pain. Yeah, okay. So, it, so it's like if your nails are long enough and you like, like imagine like when you tap it on something, you don't really feel it. You just kind of feel like the pressure of it, you know, like that kind of thing. In my stupid head, I was like, man, if someone drove a nail through my finger, <laughs> that would really hurt. Like oh yeah, no, but imagine the, the say if your fingernails are you know inches thick. <laughs> right. What if my yeah. hand was just a giant fingernail? Is what we're trying to say. Here. Well, now you're describing some kind of body horror that I don't want to imagine. Uh, so let's continue on with this because before <laughs> uh, disgusting. Anyway, uh. just needed that cleared up. So Alma stumbles into his shop and and sees old Tex being a bit bullied around and fumbling about as. One would do, as a one Ray Bulger would be prone to be doing. He's very Scarecrow in this whole... He really is just Scarecrow the rest of his life, isn't he? That's all he's doing. He's just doing the Scarecrow bit in different different skins. And then we get the song The Wild Wild West. Not the Will Smith theme song from the... About Jim West, Desperado? The the much-beloved 1997 summer blockbuster. Not that one. I don't know in this song if that horseshoe is really that hot, but that's real fire, and that horseshoe is actually red because the actress, Virginia O'Brien, touches that with her bare hand and doesn't flinch. <laughs> is it, it? It looked very real to me. Like, she's hammering at it, and I'm like, oh, it's bending. That's, that's metal that's really hot and is able to bend right now. Anyway, bravo for... Uh, Apparently scalding your hand and getting third degree burns on it and, and not flinching one inch. Uh, this is a very cute song. Again, like I said, this is a movie that has some different perspectives on uh, women's place in the world. And I think this song kind of feeds into that narrative of here's this woman who's like, ah, I thought the West would be this. And in fact, it's he said it's just a bunch of men who don't want to shower. That's yeah. that's what it is. Another uh, yeah, fun song that was sort of this actress's bread and butter was doing some more comedic bits. Also, fun fact, and when I say fun, um, I mean not fun at all. I mentioned that she was pregnant during this movie, and that's why you don't see her in the second half. She was in, I think, about 15 films in about a f- just a few years of being with MGM. She has the baby and does three films for the rest of her life. Now, you could say, oh, she just went to go, you know, have a different life and raise her child, which could be very real. But um, uh, considering the way that women were treated in Hollywood back then also could be the complete opposite. And they just never gave her work again. Uh, Nonetheless, she's she is uh, delightful in this number. Later on, Susan goes just out of town to see the scenic tundra of um, Sandrock. I mean, it's definitely not the San Fernando Valley. It's definitely not that. Definitely not. A hundred percent not. It's it's a hundred percent Sandrock, Arizona. 
Yeah. Those those hills don't look like they're California at all. No. Nope. Not a nope, bit. Not at all. Not, not a bit. Uh, she tries to find out how Ned really feels about her, asking her about the letters that he wrote and how beautiful they were. And then, by the end of their conversation, his true feelings come out, and he gives her that big old kiss as she is just beside herself and then runs back into town. Back home, the girls find a rattlesnake in their closet, and Susan is once again questioning whether or not Ned was involved. What are his real motives? But, once again, turns out to be another dirty trick by Judge Purvis himself. Once again, stroke the mustache, stroke the mustache. Uh, He's once again just trying to drive those girls out of town. I don't want these Harvey meals. I want cold beans and rancid meat, damn it. (laughs) Where's my weak old coffee? Disgusting. It's not good for your constitution. Again, they they don't know any difference. They just they yeah. probably just eat rattlesnake with the venom still yeah. in it. They don't care. They don't give a shit. Well, everything just everything just smells so horribly. They can't taste anything anyway. This right. Absolute abs- smell of horse shit everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> just absolute heathens. Yeah. Anyway, later on that day, uh, Deborah passes through the saloon as. She hears a tune coming out of it, a beautiful song on the piano. And uh, the piano player for the saloon, Terry, played by Kenny Baker, is playing a number that he goes on to sing for her. And that would be the song you've already heard a couple times, Wait and See. It goes on to be a hit, I think, on the charts. Uh, It's a a lovely little number. Nothing much to it. Just a nice little number for a male singer to show off. And I think this is probably more notable that this is the first big dance solo in the career of Sid Charisse, who goes on to do tons and tons and tons of movies, a few with Fred Astaire. That would be her most notable work. But yeah, you can see here uh, just the talent as a dancer that she brings to the screen that they basically just, because this relationship is like, this is the beginning and the end of this story in this movie these two like there's nothing to it 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 really other than it kind of brings those two places together and then causes the strife but i think this number is really just there to be like oh we have this really good dancer let's show her off a little bit yeah and they do and does a great job at this point the showgirls look on with disdain as one of the harvey girls has successfully infiltrated their saloon and taken one of their men so of course it's time for a good old-fashioned saloon brawl as the harvey girls and the showgirls begin to fight all around you see judy putting up her dukes i just she throws no but there's no actual scenes of her like being tossed around or or punching anyone yeah. it's just a lot of yeah put them up put them up there's a lot of comedy by julie Gar- judy garland in this movie she's really good she's really funny in it like she gets she gets a lot of big laughs in this movie and well earned yeah it's uh, a little disappointing that uh, suddenly the movie devolves goes from look at these independent girls trying to make a living to now the women are just at war with each other for yeah. for the right of the men in town. Oh, oh yeah. well. It's it's 1946. There's only so much I could have expected. That that is very true. Yeah. On watch of uh inappropriate things. There's only uh I'm trying to remember if there's how many there are, but I the one that caught out to me was uh her saying like, "Well, I'm a gypsy." <laughs> I was like, "Oh, oh yeah, <laughs> yeah." I was like, "Oh, uh, there's a there's a couple." The one that really stood out to me is later on. 
as the whole town is gathered, which, hey, good on them for being inclusive and not, it's not just, it's 1946, you could have just had a whole bunch of white folks in that party. You know, there's actually diversity in the party. Unfortunately, <laughs> the one Native American there, he's wearing a Native American chief hat and go and doing the, I don't even want to do it. The typical, oh yeah, yeah, you know yeah. what I'm talking about. Putting yeah. the the mouth against the hand instead of clapping. So uh, yeah, that wasn't good. Yeah. So after the big brawl, the next night, the Harvey girls determined to show that the men of Sandrock might actually like a little bit of good, clean fun. Stage a party of their own, a friendly little hoedown over at their place. Uh, where everybody gets to just dance and show off and learn this brand new dance where oh, you put your arm around a girl's waist? <gasps> oh my god, this new dance that is sweeping the nation, rather yeah. the world, the waltz. But before that, we get, we've already alluded to it, just a phenomenal dance number from Ray Bolger. Yeah, such a great tap number. Um, like I like I said earlier, I feel like Dick Van Dyke probably watched this and took a lot of inspiration from the physical acting, the physical dancing, the the, the elastic, rubbery movements, uh, comedic cues of the dancing. It's just such a joy to watch uh, him on screen. Yeah, it was just really entertaining and. It immediately like, stuck out to me. Like there are parts in the movie where you know you're kind of like, okay, okay, we're you know we're we're dealing with some like typical musical fare, and then like he pops it, and you're just like, oh, okay. I think the musical numbers uh, really pop in this movie. A lot of the musical numbers really, really pop, like this and um, uh, what is it? The the train must be fed, and on the Atchison Topeka. Uh, I feel like they pop out even more than than some contemporary musicals of the time just they're so like you said they're so dynamic and they're um, just filled with a ton of life and energy that's just really really top notch and yeah Ray Bolger maybe he was just a little bit too much like Scarecrow all the time maybe he was a little too weird maybe his look wasn't quite right but dude was talented as hell like it's crazy to me that did you know that uh, Dick Van Dyke and Ray Bolger in a movie together? Oh man, I don't think it's, I did know that. It's a drama, docudrama called The Runner Stumbles. Why? Why is it a docudrama? It's ba- it's based on a Broadway play. Okay, but, fair enough. <laughs> I was gonna say, wait a minute. No, they need to be dancing together. Well, I don't think there's any dancing in this. No. Uh, it's also Bo Bridges, Maureen Stapleton, Kathleen Quinlan. Well, I'm gonna oh. have to watch it. I it I immediately thought, oh boy, this is this is Dick Van Dyke. He's doing that, and it's twenty, it's fifteen years prior. It's this is awesome. There's also a lot of uh, moments where Dick Van Dyke imitates Ray Bolger, so yeah, he's definitely one of his intru- his influences. Oh yeah, this is, is definitely uh, Ray Bolger walked so Dick Van Dyke could run. I I think that pretty much sums it up. Uh, it's wonderful. So great. So great. Uh, apparently there's an interview. Uh, I, I just looked up Dick Van Dyke Bolger on YouTube, and there's an interview you probably want to s- check out, Cody, because uh, I just see the little, you know, the little tiny um, description on the Google search. Mm-hmm. Uh, it says KPCS Dick Van Dyke 181. 
Van Dyke chats about how dancing keeps him his young at heart and his time spent with Walt at Disneyland Park. Well, I know what I'm doing after we're done. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Uh, after Ray Bulger just kicks absolute ass and tears, cuts it up on the dance floor, uh, we get the song Swing Your Partner Round and Round. Uh, another just huge, grand number. I love some of the sweeping shots we get in this. Um, some of the choreography is so great where the girls, like the way they start out all together, um, again, reminds me so much of uh, like a stage musical. We get also... A really nice moment with Judy Garland and Ray Bulger together for the first time since Wizard of Oz doing a nice big dance. It just, uh, just for those who know, those in the know, it just uh, makes my heart sing. I love it. It's it's really, really sweet. Big, wonderful, lavish, awesome number. And then the showgirls come over and disrupt all the fun or the dance hall girls, if you will. Excuse me. Even showgirls feels a little too derogatory at this point. Yes. They come over, they disrupt all the fun, and uh, while some of the men go back to the saloon, most of them decide to stay at the Harvey Girls party. Unfortunately, Ned Trent has to go back to the saloon. He is the manager, after all. He does manage that place, so I guess he has to go back to his uh, place of work. So I don't, I don't uh, fault him too much. But... As the Reverend says, for the first time, the men showed that they're not just a bunch of alcoholic chauvinists. Hooray! <laughs> yes, for the first time, the men decided to have a, what is it, have a, instead of having a wild time, to have a just good time. a good time. Yeah. Oh. Good men. Yeah. I, I, just how low the bar was back yeah. then. Hey! He didn't throw a bottle of alcohol across a room and go have random sex with three women he never knew in one night. Hooray! It's like, it's like me during quarantine. I'm like, hey, I didn't have a beer yesterday at all. Yeah, yes, exactly. Right. Yeah, these standards have, right. the, the standards don't even exist anymore. The bar is nice and low right now. It's very nice. The bar is at the center of the earth. It's so low yes. at this point. Oh, man. So later that night, uh, Susan and Ned do meet up later on at their little spot, uh, the little spot, you know, that's that's totally not the Shannon Fernando Valley. Uh, <laughs> and she realizes that they just can't be together if this is going to be his lifestyle, if he's going to continue at the saloon with a bunch of dance hall girls doing just dance hall stuff. So she just decides that it's just, it's just not going to happen. And as Ned gets back to town, he sees that Judge Purvis and a local bandit are starting to burn down the Harvey house. He tries to stop them, brawls with them inside of the place. This, at this point, it really does turn into a Deadwood storyline. It's like, yeah, <laughs> like that's Al Swearingen right there, just like trying to burn down like another person's business. You come into my fucking town, <laughs> you know, just it's really. <laughs> It gets real serious. It gets very serious at the end, and uh, they brawl inside of this burning building. It's kind of awesome, but unfortunately, uh, he was too late. The house burns to the ground, and everything's gone. And by the end, Ned realizes that he's not going to be able to hold on to M or Susan. And then M, along with a few other showgirls, hop on the first train out of town. And now he's just lost. He's got nobody. Susan also gets on the train to leave, and her and M have a bit of a heart-to-heart, -heart, and that's when Susan tells her that she'll just have to become a dance hall girl if she really wants Ned. 
And then M realizes, no, you don't. That's are you kidding me? As she sort of suspects, she warmed her icy cold heart in yes. that moment. Oh, warmed her icy cold heart. That's all it took. And then Angela Lansbury became everyone's favorite grandmother. And and her heart grew two sizes that day. <laughs> she finally empathizes with her, tells her she's got it all wrong, and that yes, Ned is in love with you, not with me, with you. M decides to stop the train and tells Susan to go off and find Ned. And wouldn't you know it, Ned was following closely behind on horseback to catch her. They both fall down in the dirt as they run towards each other, embrace one another. And then we flash forward to their wedding day with the whole town of Sandrock there to witness it. And then suddenly they sing, Arizona, where the wind comes sweeping down the play. Okay, no, it's... It feels very, again, it's basically the ending of Oklahoma. They all yeah. get married. Except in this one, if that were going to be the case, Judge Purvis would come back. Uh, Ned would then kill Judge Purvis in cold blood. And then everyone yeah. would go, ah, who cares if you murdered someone? Go off and get married, you kids. Yeah, at this point, uh, you know, he dresses up in his finest uh, preppy wear. She comes, she shows up in her leather. She's like, She's like, how you doing, stud? And uh, we're at the end of Greece. You know, everyone's shoe pop a and having a great old time right now. Are we saying that there's a formula here that uh, we're, we're sticking with? Anyway. Yes, absolutely. So there you go, the Harvey girls. That's how it all ends. A nice old Western hoedown musical. And as we always do, let's decide to, uh, you know, tarnish a wonderful classic by remaking it like we always yeah. do, uh, because it's bound to happen at some point with some of these musicals we're talking about. Let's start off with uh, Judy herself, the character she plays, Susan Bradley, just going off, leaving smug, stuck up Ohio to go out to yes. the West. Uh, I went ahead and went with Janelle Monet uh, purely for the scenes where she confronts uh, what's his name uh, about the letter that he wrote. Oh, Ned. Yeah, uh, for the scene where she really gives him what for, and I like her. Obviously, has a great voice. She can dance, so that you know that adds into the whole the whole thing of it. But yeah, that's who I would go for. Yeah, good call. I really like her. Uh, I'm going with someone we have mentioned a few times as someone. We're like, why has she done nothing in movies uh, since she was in Les Mis? Uh, that would be Samantha Barks. Oh, that's such a good call. I think she'd be really good. Also, she's done a lot of great Broadway since this, uh, or in on the West End. So. Uh, she would be really, really good in this role. Um, and she just looks the type. She's She's got the fantastic voice. Yeah, that's who I'm going with. Uh, Ned know. Trent, who doesn't sing, but was actually supposed to have a song yes. in this movie. And I bet if Gene Kelly was in it, he would have definitely had a song. So I wanted, I wanted someone a little older, a little wiser, dashing, but can also be a little dastardly at times. And I went with a Mr. Oscar Isaac. Ooh, that's a good pick. I really like that pick. Uh, I went a little older at first, but I think he almost is a better fit for another role, I'm going to say, so I'm going to hold off. But then it dawned on me, I'm like, if he is going to end up singing, 
maybe I'm going to go with Billy Magnuson. Uh, from you might know him from Into the Woods. He was also in the Aladdin remake very briefly. He's always a scene stealer, uh, and I think he could have that like sort of dastardly charm uh, that would work really well. And um, yeah, that's that's who I'm going with, Billy Magnuson. How about M, the quote unquote dance hall girl, um, yeah. who is always a little bit jealous of uh, the Harvey girls? Well. She's got to be smart, street smart. Uh, she can basically hold her own, and she insults people, and she's very, you know, uh, savvy is a good word. Uh, I, I know if this is easy uh, based on the amount of prestige television we have going on right now, but I picked Tandy Newton. <laughs> <laughs> you literally just were like, yeah, I'm going with Maeve from uh, Westworld because yeah. uh, she's done it. It's Maeve. I mean, That's, you can't go wrong. Yeah. You really can't go wrong with uh, with Tandy Newton for, for pretty much anything. Yeah. Can she sing? Do I'm going to guess yes, even though I don't know if she can. I don't I'm know gonna, either. Apparently, there's a video of her singing Summertime by Lena Horne, so. Oh, my goodness. I'm going to okay. assume she can. Otherwise, who in her body would you even let her try? put that out? Yeah. yeah. Why, why would you even try? <laughs> Although I have to listen to that, <laughs> I think there was one week where I was like looking up, like I gotta get a lot of, I gotta get a list of other actors who can sing, and I stumbled on. Now he does do a musical, uh, Robert Downey Jr. singing, and mm-hmm. he can sing, but every song he does, he just sounds like Sting, and it's kind <laughs> of weird. So like, if I ever need someone to sing like Desert Rose, I know who to call. Other than, and I can't get Sting. It could be worse. You could hear Jeremy Renner's album again. Oh, yeah. All right. Yeah. Man, I'm so glad he released that just in time for the quarantine so we all can listen to it because we got nothing else to do. It's, it's really going to be known as the Jeremy Renner period. <laughs> <laughs> the the uh. Jeremy. The, I was about to say like a McConaissance, but you don't even have to. It's the Jeremy Renaissance. It's his name. Exactly. Perfect. So it's yeah. all here. It's happening right now. Where were you when you heard Jeremy Renner's new metal slash whatever nonsense that generation was. defining album? Agro metal. Anyway. Anyway. <laughs> Agro rock. Uh, yeah, I have Vanessa Hudgens for this role. I think I mentioned that. Oh, good. That's a good yeah. one. I think she's like, I feel like whenever they're doing these like live musical remakes or stuff like that they put her in this kind of role anyway Mm -hmm. uh so and i think she's the right personality the right character for it um there's a lot of characters to cast so uh, if you don't have all of them all good uh because i I don't have many other ones other than uh do you have judge purvis someone for the old heavy judge purvis oh yeah i picked josh holloway from lost Ooh, good call good call I initially went a little older and said Chris Cooper, but I feel like that's too old at this point. And also, he mm. was such a warm and wonderful human being in Little Women that I can't see him as this cold and mean man anymore. Yeah. And then I went with the guy I was originally going to cast as Ned Trent, John Hamm. I oh, think that's good. I think he'd be a John Hamm. When Picture he plays, him in uh, Baby Driver. Exactly. Like when John yeah. Hamm plays mean, when he plays bad. He does it really, really well. So, yeah. uh, any other casting that you uh, have? Who's the Who's the head of the the Harvey Girls? Oh, uh, that would be Sonora Cassidy, our old uh, our old friend uh, from uh, from Meet Me in St. Louis. She was the Katie the maid in Meet yeah, Me in St. I, Louis. For that, I picked Amy Ryan. Oh yeah, that would work. That would yeah. work really well. Yeah, 
Oh, and uh, what's his name? The silly guy. The silly guy. Yeah, I was gonna say Ray Bolger's role. I was so this was one I wanted to cast, but I was like, again, as we're doing this, who's a contemporary that is in the See, mold? That's, that's the problem. So this is the problem. The first person I would cast of when I think of the dancing is Channing Tatum. Right. However, he's, he's not way too enough. attractive right. to play the guy that she's like, oh, this guy? Obviously. <laughs> uh, when I thought of someone who could play that like Don Nazi role that the guy plays, I picked Zach Braff, but he can't dance. No. So I, I somehow if you can put his dancing brain into Zach Braff's body, that, that'd be who I would pick. <laughs> Science, get on it. God, I, I really don't know who I would pick. Um, maybe the only other guy I'm thinking of uh, would be from uh, a lot of Broadway credits. Uh, like he did Tootsie on Broadway. He was also in uh, Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, uh, Santino Fontana. Oh, yeah, yeah. I think but, he yeah, could do it, but he's, he's almost even a little too good looking. So. He's very good looking. <laughs> he's very good looking. It's not, yeah. yeah, that's why I'm like, yeah. But, he, but he's got unless the sort of. Just, unless someone you pick, you just uglied him up. Yeah, I mean, not, like, you don't not even have saying to. The, the actor is not even ugly, but it's just right. that you have to do something to. I actually think like because he's got the goofy sort of he can bring that sort of goofy energy to it. It's not enough. I mean, maybe there are more people we know that can tap dance in Hollywood right now, but I I feel like it used to be you would stumble and fall into someone who could tap really well in Hollywood in the forties and fifties. Now it's. Like I, I don't They're all know. All too goddamn good looking, you know. You're gonna get, all uh, too good looking. Yeah, you're gonna get yeah. what? Tom Holland? Oh, congrats! Right, right. He can dance really well, but yeah, right. That's we're gonna give him that. Really? Like, come on. Where are my ugly kings who can dance? Come on. There you go. Just make him just just throw age out the window. Have it be Christopher Walken. <laughs> <laughs> he would forget half of his lines during the movie, though. Even oh. better. Even better. <laughs> well, that will wrap things up. Uh, for this week's edition. Next week, we will be venturing down a new path, a new journey in the movie musical genre. As I said, movie wrong and tried to cover it up by saying everything else weird. But we will be going down a new path. Uh, you can find our information uh, at Movie Musical Pod on Twitter, moviemusicalpod.com. That's our website. You can still find us at SWG Podcast, thescreenwatchersguild.com. You can find me on Twitter at Cody Pasby. I'm at Paul Ponte, and uh, I have another podcast. It's called uh, Indie Handshake. It's an independent pro wrestling podcast. Uh, podcast where i talk to some of the names of independent pro wrestling until next time i'm cody pasby i'm paul ponte and we will see you down the yellow brick road <laughs>